Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Nicole Lazaro, founder and president of Zio Design. As a veteran of the video gaming industry, Nicole leverages her 20 years expertise in play experience design to help companies such as Disney, LucasArts, and Electronic Arts build memorable and entertaining experiences for their players and customers. Nicole is widely recognized as one of the top women working in the video game industry and a leading figure in mobile and social games. She's considered one of the 100 most influential women in high tech and voted one of the top 20 women working in video games by Game of Sutra. Nicole is also known for designing the first iPhone game called Tilt World, and since then the players have planted 16,000 trees in Madagascar through the points that they've earned in the game. In our conversation today, Nicole and I will be addressing women in tech, sexism and misogyny, and harassment in tech, her advice to women and founders starting out, and Gamergate. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. So girls first become interested in tech careers at age 11 and are reported to lose interest soon after. And experts believe that the lack of female mentors and gender inequality play a role in this trend. When did you first become interested in gaming and tech? And who were your mentors, if any? Great. Well, I first became interested in gaming and tech with the release of Pong, <laughs> the, the home version, because uh, I went over to a friend's house and uh, we stayed up or I stayed up pretty much the whole night playing it. That was my first exposure to interactive entertainment. And uh, it was on a home, one of those home, you know, TV consoles. And that's when I fell, first, you know, fell in love with, you know, interactive entertainment and really kind of got me, kind of got me started. I was a huge fan of movies growing up. So I went to a lot and a lot and a lot of movies, read a bunch of science fiction. And for me, the ability to create these worlds, these interactive worlds that I could share with my friends, that was just uh, amazing. I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to create these fantasies I could share with my friends. And then I, you know, I wanted to create uh, interactive educational experiences as well. How, how old were you when you first were introduced to Pong? Uh, I was about 13, I think, so fairly, fairly young. And uh, do you have any siblings? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were older or younger? Younger, yeah, younger. Okay, definitely. so they weren't really involved in playing with you. It was just you and your peers. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was me and my peers and, uh, you know, and, and my siblings as well. Yeah, it was a really interesting process. Once I found out what a video arcade was, uh, that was amazing because then I was dropping quarters, you know, every weekend trying to play. Uh, my favorite game at the time was uh, the Star Wars, you know, vector, you know, it just had vector graphics, but it had voices from the movie. And uh, that was, that was amazing. Uh, that was amazing as well. And where was this? Where did you grow up? I grew up all over the place. So I, you know, we, yeah, we moved around a lot as a family. And so I'm really fascinated with virtual reality right now, you know, in augmented reality. And it's because it's really like a trip to Wonderland. You know, it's an interactive world that you can build, uh, you know, that you can build and explore with, with friends. 
And uh, I actually sort of grew up in Wonderland. I grew up overseas in the Middle East, riding camels, climbing pyramids, exploring fire temples. And, you know, I want to go back and experience uh, you know, all these things I felt that full body wonder I felt when growing up as a kid. Uh, and I really wanted to share that with uh, share that with everybody. So that's how I got into the more you know virtual experiences, uh, designing you know designing these kinds of games because I wanted to create those you know recreate those play experience I had as a as a little kid growing up. And and were your parents? I'm guessing because they introduced you to Pong, they were encouraging of they bought you your first computer, and so you started coding. Was there any other kind of infrastructure while you were growing up to help uh, there support was that? Pretty much, yeah. We were. Um, I grew up in a single parent household for most of it, and uh, you know we experienced you know food scarcity and all those challenging things as many single you know single parent families do. So uh, mostly, I got my exposure through uh, to computers through a little bit through. Wasn't really until I went to college actually. Um, I did go over to my friend's house and played on their console games, you know, uh, which was really fun. I love that. I, I would love to have had one at our house, but, you know, we, uh, we weren't wealthy enough to have a, a computer. We did have a TV, and that was a really amazing thing. We bought a little gold star, you know, 12-inch TV, 13-inch TV. Um, but, yeah, when I went to Stanford, then I fell in love with the, uh, you know, computer science. So I took a lot of um, computer science classes along with my psychology. I have a degree in psychology, and I took mechanical engineering, uh, programming classes, and the uh, uh, filmmaking classes as my, as my electives, you know, to kind of round it all out. Uh, so I think my best mentor was simply the fact that I spent my, we were in St. Louis at the time during high school and I spent my summers reading, you know, Bradbury and Wells and all of them. So they were kind of my mentors. I read the entire science fiction section in my, in the library, the St. Louis public library. And so those were really my, those authors were really my mentors in terms of getting a, uh, a technology, uh, career. My grandfather, I had a grandfather who was an engineer, and so it's definitely in the family. But I think the people that uh, really caused me to inspire for, to a technical career were really, really reading that all that science fiction and imagining what the future could be and then really wanting to be a part of it. And what was the experience like at Stanford? Um, I actually was an undergrad there, too, and I can tell you. Oh, great. <laughs> and I wasn't, yeah. it wasn't very friendly to me in terms of my personal experience exploring certain kinds of uh academic pursuits. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, the, the engineering and STEM uh, areas tends to be predominantly male. So was it friendly? Yeah, or? well, sure. Yeah. What was interesting about Stanford is that I think the thing that I learned the most, and this happened in freshman year, is that I took um, I took VTSS, the Values of Technology and, so and Science and Society. So it was a liberal arts requirement for all Stanford graduates. Uh, and, or, you know, undergrads, I guess. And then I, so I was taking the science version of history. And then I noticed that there was definitely some friction in the, uh, in the STEM curriculum. We didn't have the word STEM at the time, but in the, in the science, in the math, in the computer tech. But I had already grown up in an all-female household and was pretty used to bucking the system. And uh, the system told us that we've never survived. And, you know, we did, in spite of the fact that there wasn't a guy in the house. And so I, you know, just continued to try and do as much as I, as, as I could. On the computer science side, they didn't have a CS degree at the time. So, you know, much less than HCI, which is probably what I would have done. 
uh, you had to you had to major in either math or philosophy. Philosophy didn't seem like a very viable degree, and uh, I didn't like math that much. I mean, I like math, but not that much to major in it. So I uh, just again just tried to take as much of the core as I could. Uh, we worked on lots, you know, with the low overhead time sharing. So I played adventure, you know, in all text ASCII characters on the real real tapes, you know, uh, that they had there. And then eventually I would borrow friends or I would just, you know, use the library of computers to do my papers and stuff like that. Or I'd borrow a friend's Macintosh. And then I got a check from a relative I hadn't heard of in a long time. And I actually bought my first Mac the, you know, the day after I graduated. <laughs> and so, and that really started my whole career because I had that Mac Plus, uh, had to save a while. It took me six months to save for a hard drive, uh, a Jasmine 10 megabyte, which cost an enormous amount of money. And then that I taught myself HyperCard on the train in on paper, using paper and pencil, because I couldn't actually run it on the uh, on the Mac Plus because you had to like swap the drive too often. You know, HyperCard fit on one floppy and then my program would fit on the other floppy. So I just decided I would just teach myself HyperCard language, um, just all pen and pencil and paper. So that was kind of my early kind of my early experience at Stanford. So it seems like even though you had some logistical obstacles that kept you from actually engaging in tech actively while you were in school, your interest in it was so deep that you were able to learn on your own and not let them get in the way. Exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Basically, I didn't have a piece of computing equipment or anything more than a clock radio (laughs) until after I graduated Stanford. And, uh, and I also bought my first car for a dollar and then I bought uh, a computer with the, uh, with the money someone gave me for as a graduation present. Was that an unusual experience? How many women were enrolled in CS at the time? Well, there were, there were fewer people. And again, you know, this was Stanford didn't have a CS degree. So pretty much, you know, most of the folks were guys and most of my friends generally were guys as well because I just found the conversation more interesting. You kind of go back and think, well, wait a minute, what was that? What was that all about? Uh, but I really love tech conversations. I did work study. So I had the wonderful opportunity of going to Stanford and I you know, did a lot of work study to help pay for it. And I took the, basically I, I did camera for SITN, the television network. So I operated uh, little video, you know, video cameras, uh, editing rooms, I guess where I would record uh, classes for their television network. And so I just basically got to audit a bunch of mechanical engineering and science and programming classes. So that's how I learned Lisp-ish, you know, and, uh, and some, other, some other things. So, yeah, I didn't get an actual uh, computer until after, um, until after I graduated. But I really loved technology, you know, from the start. And as I said, like, what did I, I didn't go out and spend, you know, my graduation money on a, on a, on a prom dress or on a, <laughs> you know, or on a fancy car or anything like that. I put it right into, right into a computer because I really, really loved what was going on there. Mm. These days, there's been a lot of studies addressing how computer science is not accessible to girls and females. Um, and in fact, the, the BRAID initiative uh, made an effort to encourage universities to modify their intro to CS courses. And they encouraged the University of California at Berkeley to change the title of one of their intro courses for non-majors. They changed it to, quote, the beauty and the joy of computing, which apparently generated more female enrollees for that class than there were males. And I'm wondering, you know, the women in in tech and CS that you are meeting now, possibly those that you've hired 
Um, have you heard whether these kinds of signifiers have had an impact on their experience, prohibiting them being an obstacle? And if so, how have they navigated that? Yeah, I haven't, um, I haven't gone to the level of like looking at what people's, you know, the names of people's courses. Uh, what I found more is I've really just, as I really tried to reach out and support efforts like, uh, you know, you know, girls who code or, you know, black women who code, those, those kinds of efforts where it's, uh, kind of a more of an extracurricular, you know, event, you know, hackathons and then just being visible as an engineer and not just, my equally valid role, which is as a designer or producer or someone who's running her own company, uh, but just to show that there are other options. I think it's lovely that we want to look at the the language. I think that we probably indoctrinate, you know, people uh, based on their gender to like specific words or, or adjectives or have, you know, so it's a kind of a shame that those adjectives, when they're, that there are career paths that those adjectives don't apply to. So I love this idea of, um, you know, having, having beautiful code. From my perspective, I think what's fun is that the, I think is encouraging is that you get projects that I try to inspire women and, you know, girls to make projects that are just of interest to them. So whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, a a little game with cute characters or, you know, something that, you know, um, a beauty shopping recommendation thing, that's kind of stereotypical, but whatever, whatever interests them, I usually go and I'd say, uh, if we have, uh, you know, this is my world. See, I created this game called Tilt World because I wanted to create this little tadpole, you know, she's like got little feet, but can't really crawl. So she like jumps around a lot when you rotate the phone, eats carbon out of the air and plants seeds and fights global warming in the game. And then also in the real world. And that was my idea. And then, so now what's, what's your idea? What, what kinds of things would you want to make happen? And that's really sort of my gateway into technology was to try and make these, you know, worlds that I wanted to experience and then that other people would want to as well. I was super inspired by the uh, Miller Brothers uh, from Cyan that did the game Mist. I played all their earlier ones like, you know, um, Cosmic Osmo and Manhole. And that was super inspirational. So I, you know, made my own little hypercard, you know, games using a lot of this, uh, you know, concepts from C++ classes that I'd taken and that kind of thing. I think with us, with me, I think that it was it was great to have. It would be great to have had more female role models. Um, but I also think that I just, you know, am really, you know, I just say like, well, you know, this is what it is. And I just push forward regardless of, you know, whether or not there's a lot of support. I think the support's great, though, because I think that really, it really helps um, help people, you know, help people get into things. One of the reasons that I've, well, I've heard is certainly in tech that women are interested in seeking that kind of support and mentorship is because of the high level to which your sector has been associated, well, that it's white male dominated and the high level to which it's associated with sexism and misogyny in in some of the personalities of very prominent tech startup founders. Um, and of course, you know, later on, we're going to talk about Gamergate. So what was your experience like when you first entered the industry with regard to sexism and misogyny? Well, I think it's really two sides of the same coin in a sense that on one hand, you know, there is a lot of friction, you know, against, you know, women based on how I might look, how I might show up. But on the other hand, there's been a lot of really, really lovely people of both genders or of all genders and, and you know, races and all that, that really opened doors for me. 
And I did have a number of early mentors in my career that were amazing, just absolutely amazing, giving me time to, you know, go out to lunch together or to talk to me. Uh, some people recommending me for, you know, different positions or making me an introduction. And then once that introduction was made, then, you know, it was up to me to sell and close the job. So I've had, I've had, you know, in a sense, you know, you could say that there are a lot of experiences that are not optimal for someone based on their race or on their gender. On the other hand, there are a lot of people, and I think an ever-growing number more people that are, especially since the elections, that are really trying to even the playing field for everyone. And I think that's really important to recognize as well. And then to really look at, well, what does ally behavior look like? And I think we're seeing that in a lot of the uh, in a lot of the conferences. For example, I was just back from uh, one of the large industry award shows, and it having gone since you know 2002, uh, where I was I and my assistant were practically the only women in the whole room, and they actually pulled us out of the peanut gallery and put us up like right next to the stage, <laughs> so that the cameras could zoom in on us because we were women, I guess, uh, and made it look more gender balanced or something which irritated me to no end. Um, but uh, although I appreciated the front row seat, it was like, well, wait a minute. And then, but now this last week was, or last couple of weeks ago, it's just like, wow, wait a minute. This is like so much more gender balanced. You know, a Lifetime Achievement Award went out to a woman and a lot of really, really great things that are happening. It's still a lot of progress, but I think things are changing. And I think a lot of it has to do with a lot more women, you know, getting into leadership positions, to be quite frank. And once you start like with a conference or with a or with a company where you start becoming more gender inclusive, it then eventually the first couple terms are probably a little bit hard, uh, but then it just snowballs and then it's super easy, you know, then, then on out. And I really give a lot of props to a number of companies in games as well as the conferences for really turning things around. Uh, in 2014 or 2013, 2015, uh, I thought that there were only like 12 or 13 women working in games. But then when some of us started to get trolled with sexism and stuff like that, we you know, sort of like introduced our, ourselves to each other. And wow, there are hundreds and hundreds of women working in games. And so what we did is we you know, really tried to get everyone uh, aligned so that people who were getting attacked sexist with these sexist trolls, you know, could, could take it, could, you know, could uh, stay online, not do what the trolls want, which was to get offline. And uh, so they would stay lit and uh, then encouraged uh, hundreds of women to want to speak at conferences. And so and that's what we've got. We've got lots and lots more women on Twitter, on stage at conferences, you know, in their Facebook, on LinkedIn, in Instagram, just rocking it. And I think that's um, one of the really amazing things we are seeing is we really are seeing an inflection point. And I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I am super optimistic uh, because I see the data. And I think the data, we are swinging and we are breaking out. Um, it's the, the toothpaste has come out of the tube and it's not going back in. So I think we are on a great journey and I think we are making progress. So is that what you mean by allyship? Because you pointed out that you're being pulled to the front was basically being tokenized. But what what other forms of allyship do you think is being engaged in right now and is, is productive? Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, a lot of doors are getting open. There's a lot more, if you look at the Academy, the Oscars, right, that, that just happened. There, uh, you know, there was a lot more inclusive, not necessarily for gender, but certainly for race. 
uh, you know, with Spike Lee getting an award and Roma winning so many awards and Black Panther winning some awards. A lot of encouragement there. I want to see it extend more to, you know, to gender. But if you look at a movie like um, the uh, On the Basis of Sex with the... Ruth Bader Ginsburg. With Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yes, long name, who I love. I love a great, and what a great role model her husband Marty is, in mm-hmm. film, right? And both in the documentary, you know, our notorious RGB or whatever, and also this one, uh, Marty's an amazing example of how to be a great ally. We saw it a lot in the uh, award ceremony, the AIAS, the Dice Awards that happened a couple of weeks ago. Not only were, it wasn't so much that, People were, a lot of women were on stage. It was more than before. But I think what was happening also in the, all the acceptance speeches were really valuing inclusiveness and diversity principles, even if they didn't actually use the word, you know, diversity. Um, so I think there's some, a mindset that's changing as well, if that makes any sense at all, mm-hmm. is that people were valuing more types of voices. So it wasn't just the, you know, just what would be what we would call a hardcore gamer, you know, a white dude sort of thing. But it was a, a wide variety of, of, of characters and qualities. In fact, the best character went to Christopher Judd for God of War, who's a real He-Man type of bloody, you know, uh, fighting character. But he had this lovely moment in his acceptance speech where he said that he really hadn't known what it was like to be a real man until he had played this character with this team. And uh, because being a real man in his book now meant to care for other people. And it's like, wow, that was very, very different kind of uh, ethos kind of philosophy. And that's great allied behavior. His character is um, it's a big macho fighting dude uh, in a very, very bloody violent game. But he has to, he has this companion, this sidekick, the a younger character, younger kid. So he's kind of got this father and son role in the whole game. You know, they take advantage of that in the gameplay. Uh, and, and that is, you know, something very, very different as well. It has a very different set of qualities uh, that, you know, just like women are tokenized, men are tokenized too, to a certain extent, that there's this limited, you know, you have to be in terms, at least in terms of games, most game characters are this real brutish, you know, got to destroy everything kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of games along that. There's a lot of other games too, but uh, that that can be kind of the stereotypes. I love that that actor was uh, being an ally in a sense because he was saying, look, this is another uh, side of myself that I discovered as part of playing this role. And I think that's encouraging a lot of gamers who admire the role, who admire the game, that kind of that genre to take a look at themselves and perhaps, you know, what it means to be a uh, identified as male gendered uh, in a, in a more healthy, in a more healthy way. Mm. And when did you decide to become a female founder of XCO? Was there something that pushed you out of that role right before, or was it something that was pulling you? Well, I think it was something that was pulling me. And again, I like to follow my own star and find out what that is. I did. I had done six months, six months of informational interviewing, taking people out to lunch, learning about what they did. I pretty much knew that gender, you know, if I looked at the world through a gendered lens, it was not going to steer me towards something that was necessarily, you know, happy for me or good for me. It was what society thought I should be. And that was pretty much like, I didn't really care what society wanted me to do. I wanted to, I prioritized what I wanted to do and what would make, you know, me happy. And so I realized two things. One is I love text. I love interactive storytelling. And I really wanted to do that. Had a taste of it at Stanford. I actually worked on some interactive LaserDisc projects at Stanford. There was a courtroom mock trial one, for example, that, that I worked on. 
And I really wanted to do interactive documentaries. That was like, oh, amazing stuff. So I confirmed that with these six months of interviews. So I interviewed programmers and producers and that sort of thing. And then I realized that I not only wanted to go into tech, but I also wanted to go into this interactive media thing. And then I also wanted to run my own shop. I wanted to do my own consulting business. I had had a couple of experiences being in-house. Well, I was still a contractor. And uh, I got one even to come out here to California from New York. Um, I went from Stanford to New York City and then back here to California. And I just didn't, maybe I didn't find the right employer at the, at the time, but I was very frustrated of knowing so much more. So I thought uh, than the people that employed me that I just had to, I just had to go out on my own. That was, that was me. I just, I just had to do, I do that. So it was definitely a pull and I didn't have any other choice really. It was like what I envisioned, what I wanted to do. I had to set up my own shop to do it. Nothing that I interviewed for was the right thing. I love the idea of having my own shop because I could change direction easily and follow my passion, follow my dream. And uh, that's what I did. And I bought into none of the stereotypes that women can't be technical or, you know, whatever. I eventually stepped back from an engineering role for a while because it just made more sense. I was better at biz dev. I was better at clients. I was better at, you know, I could hire an engineer to, to do the project. But it always frustrated me because my early engineers would like write code that was like 10 times as complex as what I would do in terms of a solution. You know, they would they would laugh. They would enjoy like filling up an entire window. There's like there was a character limit at the time with code. And it was just like, you know, like, anyway, <laughs> quite the opposite of what I would do. But you have to make choices to you know, keep the engine, the engine running. And now I love it that I've gone back to engineering, at least on our internal titles. Uh, it's been really fun to be uh, able to play more of a coding role because you can design and code at, this, at the same time. And that's what I encourage is people who want to design, learn how to engineer because it's a really tight loop. You can basically, you go out, I go out with my engineer, right? Myself, take myself out to lunch and we talk about it. And, uh, you know, and then I come home and I'm happy coding again. So it's a really great power to, have, to be able to code. So what year was this that you founded XCO Design? So I founded Zio Design in 1992. So it was a while ago. And I founded it as Onyx Productions. So that's, okay. you know, we, we changed our name about four years in because uh, Onyx was taken. It couldn't incorporate. So okay. we did Zio instead. And Zio is the feeling of discovery. It's that feeling of the undiscovered country. And I had uh, founded, co-founded the Multimedia Studies Program at San Francisco State and taught uh, programming classes and interface design classes there. And I just, there were some experiences that you just wanted to play again, whether it was like an education or training or a game and some you just wanted to put down. You were, and I really wanted to explore that feeling of wanting to continue, of wanting to explore more. And that's been at the heart of what we do here at Zio. It's all about, you know, at Zio Design, it's all about exploring that undiscovered, that feeling of wonder, that feeling of curiosity. Uh, all of this, all the work that we do tries to maximize that because that's my favorite emotion. Wonder. How did you originally fund it? Did you go out to seed funders? Was it self-funded? Uh, it's been entirely for the course of 26 years. We've been in business for 26 years. It's been entirely self-funded. You know, that's the nice thing. You know, if you grow up without a lot of resources, you can, you know, <laughs> you can uh, save. So I, I saved and I did, I volunteered for a professional organization, which is a great thing to do. So I've made my network um, by, uh, helping with the, uh, what was called the IICS, International Interactive Communication Society back in the day. 
uh, Brian Blum was the president and I was the vice president and we found the multimedia studies program, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And so I figured I had enough contacts to kind of break out on my own and I uh, got a couple of jobs and I just, you know, kept going. My definition of success was always the, um, the client when the client asked for the second job. So to help gamify it, uh, that really helped with our uh, business. And it's been pretty much referrals, uh, you know, ever since. We don't do a lot of marketing. We don't do, I do a lot of public speaking, um, but we don't have a big uh, trade show presence. We don't have a big, you know, website or, you know, not, not a lot uh, going on there. But we have a lot of, uh, a lot of satisfied clients. We did over 40 projects with Play First on the Diner Dash line. We did 12 projects with LucasArts for Star Wars stuff. We tend to have like a lot of repeat, uh, repeat business. I think your story sounds very unique. The fact that, for example, that you were able to save and it's self-funded. However, for a lot of female founders these days, especially if you have an idea and you're trying to respond to market needs, you may not have that. I don't want to use the word, but luxury. <laughs> and so right now, well, yeah, let me, let me talk about this. Cause there is the, this is definitely the dark side right now. And I think you were talking about, I think it goes much deeper and I appreciate everything that everyone else is doing. There's a lot of, and, and it is a problem we have to solve on many, many levels. But the problem, the one problem that needs to get solved that would probably have the most impact is financing female entrepreneurs. In 2018, I guess, less than 2.2% of financing, venture financing, went to female-led teams. And that's just not acceptable. Uh, I've run Zio Design self-financed because I had to, Right. So I, back in the day, I, you know, when the iPhone launched, I designed the first iPhone game at, uh, at the iPhone dev camp. So uh, Joe Hewitt and I created a game called Tilt. You rotated the phone to play. It was using the accelerometer. Oh my gosh, so cool. And, you know, everyone, everyone downloaded, it was like a million downloads. Uh, crazy fun. But, you know, I, went, I took the prototype around to all the game companies I know, all the casual game companies I know, and that were clients of mine, uh, and really got a brush off. Uh, for financing a game, which I thought was interesting. I've had very great success, you know, just as a, as a consultant, that role worked pretty well. But when I switched gears into like developing original content and looking for financing for original content, um, not exactly sure why, but it was, it was quite challenging. So I saved up for three years and that's how I made Tilt World. So I self-financed the whole thing. And then um, we've been self-financing uh, our new games, uh, Follow the White Rabbit and Aladdin's Cave of Wonders. They both, they both happen in XR, so VR, AR, you know, kind of games. And we've been having some really interesting challenges getting funded on that. And certainly the speed of which is more like molasses than, you know, hot flowing lava. <laughs> it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been super challenging. It's been super challenging. So it's one thing to fund a startup to self-finance it, to do consulting work. Uh, it's quite, it's been, my experience has been quite different in trying to get funding for uh, an original idea. And I think that I know that I'm not alone in this experience. I know that there are, you know, thousands of women that are trying to break into XR games, interactive, and then tens and hundreds of thousands of women trying to do uh, startups in the technical sector overall. And, you know, you're not, we're not really, uh, we need to make a lot more progress than we need to make a lot more progress. Cause here's what happens. If you get 
a fish rots from the head. There's a Yiddish saying, I think, that says that. And so the counter is that if you have a female-led team at the top, that whole that whole company, that whole company's products, everything is going to be a lot more gender balanced. Is it going to be a lot more inclusive just because the, the culture is going to be, you know, a lot better because uh, by and large and on average. Uh, and so without female-led teams, and to get a female-led team, you need female-led teams getting funded. So without female financing um, or financing funding females, uh, we're going to have a really, really big problem for a long time. So that's, for me, that's the silver bullet is to get more women funded. And uh, if we can do that, that's what's going to really change things. So it's not a luxury, you know, that I was able to found Zio Design, you know, whatever. I think that it's really, it was tenacity and then finding that consulting role. The consulting seemed to go out okay. You know, I'll help you with your product, but a stronger, no, I'm going to create a company. We're going to make products that I think a lot of financing uh, finds a little intimidating or something is just not, just not right. So we need to write do, you know, we need to make the most of the ones that we do have, right? So we've got Nanya Reeves with TripBit. Um, we've got Baobab Studios. That's female-led as well. We have a few female-led people who have been able to close their rounds, which is great. We have the WXR fund. So we need to do more. We need to do more more there. Um because it is, it is a it is a constraint. And I love my clients. I love the work that we do here. Uh, we also have some great games and without the financing, it's taking 10 times, five times longer than, than, uh, than it does other indie studios because the, uh, the financing is just, it's just so hard. So your comment just now really is analogous to me to the, the metaphor that people have used to describe diversity and inclusion where diversity is about inviting someone to the dinner party and inclusion is um, making sure they have a seat at the table. So it, it seems like, you know, the tech world is okay with diversity and, and making sure that as a consultant, you know, you can be invited, but with, with that, whatever you're producing, they can take or not. Whereas if you're going to actually be funded as a female founder, then that's really requiring that you have a seat at the table and doesn't seem like they're ready for that, which actually goes against the statistics that you said, that female-founded companies actually perform really well. Mm-hmm. So from a, from, a, from a sort of financial, a completely objective perspective, you would think that the return would be enough for these funders to overlook their biases. Yeah, I would say that we still haven't fixed it in tech in terms of being inclusive on the uh, just-to-participate side. Uh, I think I found it a little bit easier as a consultant because you can be a little bit more of an outlier, especially in innovation, um, which is why I focus on one of the reasons that I find it. Well, I just find innovation fun, but, uh, you know, innovative projects, people are a little bit more open-minded to, you know, it doesn't matter as much how, how you look. But once something gets established, then I think the gender expectations kind of creep in and uh, we need to get them seats at the table is basically we got to buy their, buy their tickets or make sure that they can afford the ticket. So what about, I'm thinking about different aspects of tech and startup and gaming culture that for me, if, if I were a programmer, I would be turned off by. And one of them is the actual content that I'm being asked to produce, right? So, so for example, 
I am not, I'm not interested in violence or competitive games in general. And even when my son plays Catan, you know, the whole idea of like world domination and control of resources, I think when that was becoming really popular among children, I started investigating as a parent, are there any cooperative games out there? Is there anything that actually teaches people to work together to a win-win situation? And there are so few. And so could that be part of the the problem is that the mindset of what people who have resources and are, you know, responsible for allocating those resources, they just don't think that these other kinds of modes of play and product would be interesting to the larger public. I think that's certainly a question that we've been working with the entire run for Zio Design. We've done a lot of work in the hardcore space. So we've worked on games like Battlefront and, uh, you know, the folks at Dice so in Sweden, EA, you know, they're big fans of my research, the Four Keys to Fun. But we've also done a lot of work in the casual game space, which are more inclusive. So we worked on Three in the Mist series. Uh, my model, the Four Keys to Fun, is, you know, baked into the AI for The Sims. It also inspired the sentiment analysis for IBM Watson. And on the casual game side, so we've done Miss The Sims, we've done Cosmopolitan Virtual Makeover, a lot of games that uh, have a lot a strong, you know, female as well as male, they're more gender balanced. Uh, and we've done that as part of, so there are some different play styles. It's a little bit more challenging, but I think people are starting to get more open to it, that there are multiple styles of play. So things with games like Candy Crush, it's really hard to ignore that many women playing, you know, because it's, it's a, you know, it's definitely a profitable business. Once a genre starts making money, I think people were, are, you know, take it more seriously. Like, just like The Sims. The Sims was definitely not considered a game until it started making a lot of money. And then, you know, it's one of the, it's probably one of the best, uh, best selling titles of, you know, all times. And it's essentially a dollhouse. Uh, although they were careful not to position that as a dollhouse because uh, they didn't want to lose their male, their male audience. But so I think you are right in that. And that's part of what, why I released the four keys to fun. So I measured emotion on people's faces while they played and I created a model because uh, I knew, I knew that game designers really love psychology. So a model, it was basically a model for how the best part of games uh, created different kinds of emotions. So you didn't have to just go for, uh, you know, a uh, stimulus response reward loop, you know, schedule uh, you could to increase, increase engagement, but you could do these other things like go for curiosity or wonder or schadenfreude or joy or, you know, cooperative behaviors like you're, like you're talking about. And uh, it's, again, I think that having diverse teams and this is, you know, gender, race, LGBTQ, the whole, the whole thing will get you more mechanics. Uh, I think that there's a wonderful uh, designer out there, Brie Code. She's got, uh, she's doing this, these really wonderful posts on Twitter on uh, Tend and Befriend. So she's working on her first uh, Tend and Befriend game. And she, she thought that it was, it was amazing because earlier in her career, these kinds of games were, you know, not considered, uh, she wasn't given a lot of encouragement to explore. And now she's working on one and it's amazing for her as an engineer. She really likes that match, you know, being able to work in a genre she really enjoys. And I think that having more of those experiences where you are encouraged will help with that you know, dichotomy as well. Is there anything that we can do as parents or as consumers to influence the content that's being created? Because I don't feel like, you know, certainly in the education space, like there's almost a monopoly on educational content. 
And a lot of it is coming from the South, right? <laughs> so, and then of course, you know, state by state, they have their own um, rules ar- around um, what their educational goals are and, and how to achieve it. And, and so I feel like the only places that I see more creative out of the box games are in like Kickstarter campaigns, <laughs> which is really unfortunate. Yeah, a lot of the motivations for releasing the Four Keys to Fun was that I knew the games were played in a lot of ways and that there are a lot of benefits. And one of them is, uh, you know, in addition to like the easy fun with the curiosity, the exploration, role play, or the hard fun of challenge and mastery, or the people fun of like socializing with your friends, just games and excuses to socialize, was a fourth one called Serious Fun. And that's all about changing the players really enjoying changing themselves or changing the world around them through the act of gaming. Educational games are exactly that. Training games we've worked on for Oracle and Cisco and IBM and Citibank and stuff are all about all about that. And uh, I would love to have more of those. And it's a shame that a lot of the consoles uh, decided to pull out of the educational category. So Xbox and PlayStation and Nintendo, they tended to not feature their educational content as much you know in some cases they wanted to feel it it was supposed to be about play not about learning Uh, but as many parents realize it's like your your kids will play kind of regardless as long as it's interesting and it's a shame that we're like not having as much educational content because it would be there and kids would chew it up definitely if we could have in the mainstream i think it's crazy that there's even this concept that is mutually exclusive that play Mm -hmm. and learning right right? but that's the nice thing about um you mentioned kickstarter and there's the other nice thing is that there's a mobile and there's a lot of really fun stuff like you know motion math or dragon box uh there's a lot of really fun mobile stuff that's happening because the barrier entry is is low and there's not a lot of curation on any of the app stores Mm. Well, I'm going to put forth a sort of a wish list <laughs> for you to work sure. on. Okay. Um, I think it would be great, especially as we're moving into VR at some point and becomes mainstream, is to build empathy as a as a learning goal and play experience. And and part of that is through exposing people to different geographic locations, people who aren't interested in traveling normally, maybe they'll be able to travel and having different experiences. So like culinary experiences is is a very big deal. Like people I know in New York, you know, where I'm located, they come from all over the country. And it's shocking to me how they're not open and they haven't tried other cuisines that are non-Western you know, even though we have all the best food in the world here. And so if you have, if you can build that into the VR experience where it's kind of like tiptoeing into it and getting them used to the smells and the other kinds of experiences that are more threatening to have in real life, I think that would be very good in desensitizing them and opening up the players to doing that in real life. And I think, as you were saying, if the mentality of these gaming companies is to think that education isn't part of play, well, I think that's really unfortunate because so much of what children learn in their gaming experience, video gaming experience, especially around gender, really has a deep force in shaping their attitudes and opinions and then later on behaviors, especially the, you know, the violent games, I know. And so it's just creates an opportunity for us to do the exact opposite. Yeah, I think that one of the core premises with Zeo Design, my company, and the work that we do is that all games teach. And what we do is we unlock human potential through play. That's our mission. We want to make the world a better place. We want to improve people's quality of life. And so we're creating this game, uh, Follow the White Rabbit, 
because, you know, as I said, I, VR really, it's all about creating Wonderland. And I grew up in Wonderland, you know, riding camels, exploring fire temples around the world. And so with this game, it's a game about global empathy. It's a game about a magician who's been this charlatan all his life until one day his magic actually works and the rabbit disappears, you know, wearing a priceless diamond bracelet. So now everyone wants to follow the white rabbit. And we're going to go around the world to all the cities that I visited when I was a kid from, you know, a cafe in Paris to the pyramids in Egypt to the Great Wall of China. And you'll meet characters from those cities, you know, as you go and experience a little bit of culture, a little bit of history uh, as you as you travel around. Years ago, I, I worked on Carmen Sandiego, which kind of has a, a similar kind of idea that you could get exposed to, you know, where in time is Carmen Sandiego, where in history, where in um, the world is Carmen Sandiego. Uh, but with VR, what's amazing is that we can actually then create empathy and we can actually create a much deeper sense of being in that place. And for me, with VR, it's like the first tool, this first platform where I've actually been able to recreate those experiences I had as a kid. And, uh, you know, to go and to travel and to, you know, connect with other people, other mindsets. And it really has this wonderful, empathetic opening of the mind kind of experience. And we're looking forward to bringing that to, you know, bringing that to the world. When is that going to be available? It sounds awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, we are super excited. We would love to bring it out. Uh, we're, you know, in the middle of a long period of a uh, long stretch of, as I mentioned earlier, fundraising uh-huh. so that we can get the, uh, you know, the quality of animations and stuff that we want and the acting that we want for the game. So uh, I would love to say, you know, coming soon. That's probably about all I can say right now. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, if it, uh, you know, who knows, we might, we might crowdfund it. We'll see. <laughs> it continues. Uh, but yeah, it's been a lot of, uh, you can actually sign up if you want uh, at uh, our website, which is playwhiterabbit.com. And uh, you can sign up and be a, a beta tester, or um, I think there's a click through even if you want to donate, send us some money to, so we can get started. Oh, great. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a founder, what is your distribution of uh, staff by gender and other forms of diversity? Yeah, it varies uh, varies a lot on projects. I'm always kind of amazed when I go uh, on site and we meet another team because you look around the room and I have to like really look at people's faces to remember like who was, who was Mike and who was George and who was Paul because, and then you look at the selfie with our team and like, we're like all kinds of, you know, gender, race, age, you know, location, whatever they came up all over. It's like a mini UN. <laughs> so most times, uh, a lot of our projects are, uh, short term just, you know, because they're, uh, that's the way the clients, you know, the, we fund and we basically staff different projects, but it, it varies. It varies quite, quite a bit. And we're really, I'm really happy a, about that. I don't know if you heard this in the news about, um, Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota, but there have been some former staff members who've come forward about different experiences, negative experiences they had with her. And one of the things that came out that I think I noticed most was that her staff didn't get paid medical leave for family leave. And then when she realized that, she adjusted it. So, and then people started questioning on, on the internet, like, how could that be? Apparently everybody, all the senators and elected officials get to make their own policy for their staff, which I find very strange. But anyway, I'm wondering, do you have benefits or other kinds of incentives that actually align with the values of promoting diversity? Sure. Yeah. Well, right now we are, you know, pretty much all contract. So we don't, 
you know, have uh, employees at this point. And again, it's a financing thing. You know, if we had a steadier revenue stream, we could definitely hire staff. Uh, in the past, though, we have had, you know, 401k and, and that kind of thing. I think it rather interesting, though, in the case of that senator, is that if she were male, nobody would care. Mm. And nobody would, you know, grind her over the coals for this policy. And so I think that it's right that she should have corrected it and it was not right what she was doing and that she should have the right thing. But I also think that the, the enormous amount of play it's getting feels very, uh, also feels very sexist in the fact that it's anti-sexism at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I completely agree. What's really happening with the 100 new folks that are heading, you know, that are female um, or female identified, they're heading into Washington, they're going to get and as our experience, you know, in, in games being trolled with sexist, sexism is that they're going to get scrutinized for all kinds of things. And uh, they're going to get a lot of heat for things that if they were male, you know, no one would, would make a big deal out of it. They have, they have to, and it's just a continuation. They work twice as hard to feel half as good or 10 times as hard as more my experience to feel half as good or to be, you know, considered half as good by other people. And get a, half the pay, <laughs> maybe. And get half the pay. Yeah. And there's no, there's no question about it. I mean, I've run Zio Design on 30% of the opportunity space. And if I were, you know, Nicholas Lazaro instead of Nicole Lazaro. It's definitely a restriction, but then, you know, it's got to be like, well, and, you know, my mom's generation or my grandma's generation, it was quite a bit less, right? And my grandma's or great grandma, you know, they couldn't even vote yet. So it was about a hundred years ago. We couldn't even vote. And then my mom's generation, they couldn't get credit cards, you know, at the earlier part of it, you know, in their own name. Right. Uh, so it's definitely something we're we need to all work work together and work forward for. I think that having again more female led teams, getting the financing for female led teams is the be- probably the best way out of this. Just like having women, uh, actual women, you know, in our represent us at, at the government level, we need to have uh, women represent us at board level, at the board level, at the founder level, and then at that top. But just then, everything will wash down into uh, everything will uh, will improve a lot for you know for women around the world. I think that you can have policy inside your company, but I think also it's really important to reach out and to promote the mixing and the, the aspirations and the people like getting into the field and that are, that are women or diverse, you know, diverse candidates really, you know, promoting that and just encouraging the heck out of them. As you see, as you see them making progress during the darkest times, you know, I, I counseled people that we really had to do just three things as we had to identify opportunity. We had to respond, you know, model leadership. So respond with a leadership response, not with a victim response. And then we had to showcase the results. And if, you know, day by day we did that, as a team, because our, our leaders weren't leading. The FBI was doing nothing. Well, I mean, from what we saw, the FBI was doing nothing. We now know that it was quite bigger than just us being targeted mm. uh, with the, you know, then eventually the elections in 16. Um, but uh, we realized that our leaders weren't leading. The heads of game, major gaming companies weren't, you know, leading. The platforms weren't leading. And so we had to turn to ourselves, uh, us women. We were targets. So we had to develop our own response and our own leadership. And we had to figure it out ourselves push back and then, you know, start bringing any, uh, any males or any other, any other, any other folks who had shown an interest along with us. And I think that's why we had a lot of the success that we've had still a long way to go, but we are not the same women we were in 2014. There's no question about it. It is not the same industry, a long way to go, but I've been encouraged by the progress so far. Well, that's a great segue to Gamergate and how it began as 
a attack on one female gamer uh, developer, uh, Zoe Quinn, and her sex life and how it's kind of redefined itself as an ethics and gaming journalism kind of identity and movement. And I'm wondering, do you know Zoe? And how, how did that controversy play out, if at all, in your life and your work? Yeah, it's interesting. Like I said at the earlier, is that I, for the most part, what I tried to do is just to ignore gender and just treat everybody as people and, you know, move forward. And if something felt weird, just let it go by the wayside. What happened with Zoe and then Anita and Brianna and Leia and all of these women that, uh, you know, came after is that all these women that stood up to a lot of trolling is that I realized that, you know, not only were there no more than 12 women in games, but that uh, we were pushing against an invisible layer of sexism. And I had been had been pushed back from the beginning of my career. And I remember writing about this at the very beginning when I was still a student at Stanford. I wrote a, a short story about uh, having a chain link fence, you know, between me and the rocket ships. And I wanted to be on the other side of this. And I had to climb. The boys could just walk through, but I had to climb the chain link fence to get on the other side. And I felt that that was unfair. But, you know, I just I just moved on from that and just tried to move as far as I could. But Gamergate, it really brought home a lot of these instances in my career, which were just kind of I just pushed away. And I realized that I had been discriminated against and it took some while to process those emotions and I take a plan of action. And so what I did is I decided, well, it's clearly I'm not the only one affected. It's clear that to me that it's wrong. And it's clear to me that I didn't want to have happen in 2017 what happened in 2007, where uh, Jade Redmond and Kathy Sierra, uh, Jade's from Games, Kathy's from HCI, both got trolled online in a very similar way. They both went dark. They both stepped down from the public light by and large. And that put a real chilling effect on women in tech and women in tech in conferences because they got trolled and they they stopped speaking. So that's when I started to jump in. I took a lot, a good portion of time in 14, 15 and 16 away from my business to help support women online in a fairly informal fashion. But mentoring and strategy and discussion and exploration and listening and working with the current leaders. And again, we were seeing not as much of a response as we wanted. So we looked at like, well, how can we lead ourselves? And that's when we got a lot of you know, leadership for diversity. You know, Megan Geyser's leading that. Elizabeth Olson's leading that. We've got a number of platforms. A number of male leaders have now you know, really stepped up to the plate. So it definitely transformed the way I run run my professional life in that I have this advocacy part now that's very important part to me personally. And it's all about figuring out and inspiring folks to become better leaders. And so I look at it not that I just help somebody out by mentoring them or showing them an opportunity, which I do. Uh, I'm making introductions all the time, but I'm also trying to inspire them to reach higher and farther and let's move beyond this. Let's let's build a better future together. So I try and teach leadership and model leadership skills and help people develop, especially women and people of color, develop leadership skills, because that's another part of where it's at. There's financing female women. But if you think about a leader, and this was really apparent during the early stages, is that 
leadership in a company, you basically identify people with leadership potential. So they're not leaders right now, but they're potentially leaders. You then give them special training. You then give them opportunities to express that leadership or to practice that leadership. And if they fail, you know, you get mentorship and stuff like that. That's all intentionally done inside a company. But if women are never on that first list of like identified as potential leaders, then they never get into the track, right? And so we don't have female leaders. So a lot of my focus was trying to help people self-identify as a leader, get themselves, you know, uh, training themselves or training each other on leadership or trying to figure it out on their own leadership stuff, giving themselves opportunities or opening the doors for opportunities. So I'd always try and bring like six women with me when I got into a conference or when I'm on stage, you know, I try to, you know, mention other people uh, when I get interviewed. And then that's a system that will, like a game mechanic, that's a system that grows and can help empower a lot of people. So the trolling that you were referencing, that's not just doxing, but also physical threats. And I'm wondering, you were you appeared in a uh, Samantha B video, yeah. which I thought was very cute. And I've always been interested in the idea of gamifying changing behavior. So do you think that we can actually gamify positive behavior? Uh, we can train people to be able to view other people differently and to view themselves differently and then actually then make different decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, the wonderful thing about games is that all games teach and that's the role of play. You know, if you look at like a mammal, like a dog or a cat, when they're playing, they're actually learning hunting skills or social skills. If rats grow up in isolation, they have no social skills. They really have a hard time. They don't have that play. Many human skills, I don't know if I want to say all human skills, but pretty much all human skills can be accessed through some kind of informal play. You suspend the consequences, you clarify the goals, you break it into achievable steps. Lots of different game mechanics, game thinking. It doesn't mean throwing points and badges on stuff. Uh, That doesn't really work in the long term. But uh, really breaking it into little games, uh, little game-like moments or giving you game-like feedback can do, go a long way to helping you, uh, you know, change how you behave or my, how you might perceive. And, you know, we're all subject to unconscious bias. I have it. You have it. Everyone in the audience has some unconscious bias, biases against or for things that we're not really aware of. We can't articulate because bias happens pretty deep in our brains. But at the same time, we can all through self-awareness, through mindfulness, be able to identify those points of uh, bias. And then we can ourselves, you know, change our behavior towards that, uh, you know, towards some new kind of response. And I think the key there, of course, is inspiring, giving people the awareness of the bias and giving them the inspiration, getting them to be inspired or motivated to change that bias. That's the crux. And that's the crux of a real leader. That's the real, a leader's job. They're, that's not a management job. That's a leadership job. So again, more leaders we have in the, uh, in the movement, uh, the better, because I think that will help open more of these oysters <laughs> that are that are sitting there like, you know, OK, the world's fine. I don't I don't need to change. No, the world can always be better and better for more people. Well, that's a great segue for us into our engendered questionnaire, which I've adapted from the Insider Actor Studio questionnaire. So I'd like to start with asking, what do you think is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Basic human rights for 51% of the population. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it is that big. It's not about equality to me. It's not about diversity to me. It's about fundamental human rights. The fundamental human right of of a person, you know, coming into this world, 
and having basic opportunities, you know, many of which economically I was denied as a child. Um, I mean, I got a lot of awareness out of that, but, uh, and that basic ability to create and do whatever they want to do as a career, you know, as, as, you know, choices on how they show up and to grow up in a safe space, be able to be in a same, you know, in the world, in a world that really, um, uh, you know, supports them. And the, the violence that you get can be on top of and pollute in a sense, you know, love and care and other social factors, which can be very damaging uh, in addition to just a, a physical, like, you know, unawareness. What gives you hope? Well, podcasts like this give me hope. Uh, the smile that I see, the women that I see that have come forward and coming on stage and just rocking it. The first year was kind of like, okay, this is like, this is definitely the test year. Second year of people, when the women were coming back for their second or third or fourth and third year is just like in fifth year, it's like, or fourth year, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Where did all these just, they are so much, so badass out there. That gives me a lot of hope because I knew them before and now I know them now. I've seen them on stage on their first go and I've seen them on their fourth go. It just fills me with a lot of hope. Uh, speaking in front of other people is a very can be a very intimidating thing, and I think that uh, having people um, because of that overcoming that challenge can be such a confidence booster. And then seeing them as leaders uh, for everybody in that audience just brings down the walls in terms of this conversation. When I was growing up, it was in the middle of the Cold War, and uh, there was the Berlin Wall, and nobody thought the wall would ever come down. But if you look at Leo Tolstoy's book, The Kingdom of God is Within Us, you know, he would say that, well, if a system is unbalanced, if it requires energy to sustain itself, it's unstable. So Leo Tolstoy was talking about the Russian Revolution, but then what we have is the, um, eventually the forces that kept the Berlin Wall in place are no longer there. The wall came down. As soon as the Cold War ended, boom, it was gone. As soon as this gender war ends, this that pressure these gender discriminations will, will be gone and violence will be just called violence and it'll be illegal and done. The right people will be in jail. And I'm looking forward to that day. We got a ways to work, but we're getting there. Okay, well, final question, which addresses uh, getting there. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? I think that it goes down to providing opportunity, showcasing the progress and modeling leadership for you know those around us. So in every situation, especially ones that make you mad, Think about that. What's the leadership response to this particular thing? The second thing is that is funding, funding women-led teams, uh, providing leadership opportunities for women. I think that's going to have the most impact and supporting, you know, female entrepreneurs. So buy their products, you know, buy their, fund their Kickstarters. We've got a lot of stuff happening uh, now. And I think that would be really amazing. It's got to be, you know, the institutions, the color, the diversity of the institutions at the top level have to change until we, it changes overall. We can't just tokenize, you know, put in a couple more women and be diverse. It's got to be the, the actual cranks, the actual, all the mechanics that are running that organization. They have to be women as well. And let's get rid of the stereotype that women can't be technical. Uh, let's showcase them, showcase coders, because I know that I was a better coder than half the people I, you know, I hired in the beginning of my of, of Zio. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm a better plumber, actually, than my, uh, <laughs> than my landlord is at home. So I think that we got to get rid of a lot of those biases. 
Thank you so much, Nicole. I really appreciate you sharing your journey and story with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's been lovely being here. I really appreciate your time and then the audience's time as well. I think we can all go together, push together and, you know, unlock human potential, all human potential through play. Touche. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Music.